The 14-week Out of the Cave coaching program is really about using your relationship with food to heal your relationship with yourself on a deeper level. Here's what some of the alumni have to say. It was life-giving. It was vocabulary-giving. It was thought process-giving. It was so much and a lot. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things that I got out of the whole out of the cave experience was turning, being my own best friend, turning towards myself, um, honoring and listening and speaking (laughs) for myself. I'll have to go like kill myself at the gym. It's just like, let's just move a little bit, not because I have to, but because it's my body and it's my home and I it deserves to be loved and taken care of. That's that's been a big yeah huge shift for me. <laughs> huge. Just in general, like you were the first person that actually like made me feel seen and like understood. <laughs> Hi there. Welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. I'm your host, Lisa Schlossberg, a licensed social worker, certified health coach, personal trainer, and yoga instructor. If you, like I have, struggle with your relationship with food, eating, and body image, I am here with this podcast to guide you into healing the relationship you have with yourself through a trauma-informed, holistic, and mind-body-soul approach. Together, we can support you in building a lifestyle of more peace, freedom, safety, and power. Okay, we are back. We are back with the Out of the Cave podcast. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. As usual, I am hype. I'm hyped to be here. I'm very excited about this interview. This is a long time coming, this one. So I'm sitting here again with someone who has been through the group coaching program with me. Um, it's been a few months since, since quote unquote, graduation. So I'm also excited because I get to have the updates in real time of, you know, how things are integrating and landing and stuff. So that's who I'm here with, Erica. I'm so grateful that you are showing up to have this conversation and so honestly and authentically. So seeing and honoring your bravery and being here and before anything else, as usual, I would love for you to just introduce yourself. As I always say, who are you? Where are you? What are you? How do you want the people to know who's speaking? My name is Erica Gooch and I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania where I am a researcher in the pharmaceutical industry and am a mother of of, uh, twin boys. Beautiful. Great job. That's usually the hardest question for people. So now that we've got that out of the way, as always, I mean, you know where I like to start with this. That is, we're here to just tell your story. You're a human being telling a human story. So that always begins at the beginning. So when it comes to food eating your body, what do you remember all the way back from zero to five, zero to 10, if anything? Yes, uh, I think it was a typical 80s child upbringing of cleaning your plate and an aversion towards broccoli <laughs> and trying to hide it in a napkin and sneak and go to the bathroom and throw it away, but being caught every time. Um, I know a lot of people that come on your podcast have a very complicated start uh, when it comes to weight, diets, and body image. Um, it's really unfortunate being a, a 90s teen that I had a pretty standard size, but I was a I was in ballet. I danced ballet. Mm. So at the time I was probably a size seven, but everyone else was a wave and I'm black and have hips and a butt. And I distinctly remember being in first position and them saying to tuck your butt under. And it's like, I am. And just trying to cope with not being 
as skinny as I thought I was when realistically there was nothing wrong with my body. There's still, there's nothing wrong with a body that's larger either. But I, I think back to going school shopping and going to five, seven, nine. And for those mm. that may not remember that store was, that's the name of the store because the vast majority of clothes in it were sizes five, seven, and nine. And I remember being upset that I was a seven because a seven was almost a nine. And if I was a nine, I couldn't shop at the cool store. Right. Um, which is very unfortunate. Going into adulthood, I moved to a new city. I moved to New Jersey to do my fellowship in um, drug safety or pharmacovigilance, knew no one. So my social circle was the gym. Mm. And after work, going to the gym for several hours a day. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'll pause. Yeah. I'm like, we're, oh, we're so going to get there. But oh, yeah. if we <laughs> just like, you know, examine childhood, right? So you were in ballet, which I don't even, I don't know the statistic. I wish I did, but how being in dance, specifically ballet and the correlation with disordered eating and body image issues, like it's just rampant in, in that you know, world, uh, for that reason. But so how old were you when you have that memory of like, tuck your butt under? Probably 11. Okay. 11. So like zero to 10, 12 ish, you're getting the message already from dance about your body. Were there other places that you got that message? Like you got that message from five, seven, nine being a store and wanting to shop there because that's where the cool clothes are. Is there anything else that just like brought your size and body to your attention growing up? I would say, oh, I did. I was a cheerleader as well. Hmm. <laughs> Similar issues. It, it's not necessarily a private situation when you're going to a public school where the uniforms belong to the school and they lay out all the uniforms and all of the sizes and you're trying them on together oh. and you have someone in a zero or double zero and you see the whole range and you're placed in the range to get the uniform that fits you. Right. Yeah. And again, being self-conscious about a size and a body that is healthy. Right. Is a tale as old as time, I yeah. guess. So I guess part of the reason I asked that question is because what strikes me about it is how like numbers themselves are objective, right? Three, five, seven, nine. They're just numbers. It's numerical data and it has no meaning other than what we put on it. But so I think what strikes me about it is that there's already an understanding in your brain at 10 years old that bigger is worse. So I guess what I'm curious about is, do you know where you got that? Or was that just, that's the culture that raised you? Like most people don't have an answer to that. It's like, what do you mean? How do I know that bigger is worse? That's just what is. That's how it's the water within which we swim so much that maybe you don't know. But I guess that's what I get curious about is like, how did you know that nine was worse than seven? I think I'd have to blame it on the culture. Yeah. I can say. <laughs> I think that's the answer. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't at home. It okay, wasn't at yeah. home. I think every, I can't say everyone, almost everyone's mom was using Slim Fast. I feel like that was almost par for the course. Right. Maybe almost everyone's home had smart, smart wells. What were those cookies? Yeah. I think they were smart wells. Yeah. And like those types of fat free. Right. Potato chips, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say it wasn't um, an immense pressure and negativity from home. Right. Okay. So that's also, you know, different than some people who it's like, where did I get that message? Um, Hello. It was like my mother drilling it into my brain every chance she got or something like that. But it reminds me of like Jenny and I just did a podcast and she was saying how she growing up, it was like, I just thought everyone's mom was always on a diet. 
And I thought that when you got older, you dieted. Like, I just thought that that's like the way that it works. And so I just think it's fascinating. I'm going to actually take this as an opportunity. Maybe I should put this in my own podcast, but I'm going to tell a quick story because this is what's like coming up for me right now is I remember when I was in, um, I think maybe Cambodia or Burma, somewhere like that, um, while I was traveling on semester at sea. And we were all so excited to get to the first country where we could buy the flowy elephant pants. You know what I'm talking about? With like mm-hmm. the stretchy waist. And and then they started selling them at like H&M. But like we were in Cambodia and we could get them for $3 and we were really excited about it. And so we go to this little like shack and the lady there is showing us all the different sizes, all the different colors, all the different everything. And we're trying on the pants. And I just, I'll never forget this. I was with this girl, Victoria, and the lady handed her a pair of pants and they were tight. And the lady who barely speaks English, right, was like, you need bigger size. You need bigger size. Let me find you bigger size. And I remember looking at Victoria and her face was beet red. And she just looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, I really wish you would stop saying that. And I remember being so aware in that moment that this lady trying to communicate to us was just stating a fact, like an objective fact. These pants are too small. You need a bigger size. But the way that our American brain was conditioned was that that was like shaming and it had all this meaning around it. It wasn't bigger and smaller objectively. It was smaller is better and bigger is worse. And I just had this like snapshot of like awareness, consciousness of like, oh my God, we are so conditioned without any, you know, conscious thought that bigger is worse. Because like you said, it's just the culture. It's just the way that we were raised. Yeah. It's worse when it's Jessica Simpson. It's worse when it's Oprah. It's worse when it's Britney. It's worse when it's um, Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. Christina Aguilera. (laughs) There we go. Yes. Yeah. So I just, anyway, I think, I think about that story a lot because of exactly what you're saying. That's like, it's just so embedded in the number system because of the way that we were raised. The numbers themselves are innocent, but anyway, you get what I'm saying. Okay. Sure. All right. So now moving through and, and also just like in your childhood, food and eating specifically felt pretty stable, quote unquote, normal. Like there's nothing really to report in terms of like food and your relationship with food. I was a picky eater and I think picky eaters get a bad rap. I've (laughs) seen people that are not picky eat food they genuinely don't enjoy. And it's just chew, chew, swallow versus versus it being repulsive and like having a visceral reaction towards eating something of a certain texture. Um, and getting in trouble for it and being, I mean, it makes you kind of a social outcast. Like, what do you mean you don't eat ketchup on your French fries? Mm-hmm. Ketchup is fine at the moment. But so so there was that factor, but it, it, it didn't necessarily have a tie-in with the, I'm wearing a leotard in front of three full wall mirrors and my stomach isn't exactly flat. The picky right. eating part didn't necessarily integrate with that. But right. I mean, that was a, a tough relationship to have with food. Yeah. I hear that. In a way, I mean, like, I don't want to minimize other people's experience. Just it, it was stressful. Yeah. Eating was stressful. Eating in strange places, trying new things was stressful. because You don't want to embarrass yourself. Right. Well, I think that's a really important piece to the puzzle, whether it feels like it has anything to do with wearing a leotard, because it's just another version of how food and eating can carry a lot of weight, no pun intended, and just be more stressful and emotional than it needs to be because you have an animal brain in a social context. So you just deciding that honoring yourself is that you really don't like ketchup. And then the way that that is received by other people is what's wrong with you. Right. It's it's a really tender, formative age from zero to 10, 
where it feels like our safety is to fit in with the crowd. So even being a picky eater can feel really scary and isolating, you know, on that on a primitive level. So I'm I'm glad you shared that because I think that's another form of a relationship with food that doesn't necessarily get represented a lot here, right? There's a lot of overeating and undereating, but picky eating has its own story. As the and- memories come flooding back. So yeah. in yeah. first grade, uh at the at the school cafeteria, you had to you had to pick a fruit and you had to eat a fruit. The fruit of the day was canned peaches, the slimy, gross little peaches in the um semi-opaque white cup. The cafeteria lady would not release you to go to recess until you ate it. Oh. I did not want to eat it. I hid it in my chocolate milk. So there's peaches floating in chocolate milk. She found out and she was like, you're still going to eat it and you're not going to get up until you eat it. As I one by one watched everyone in my class go to recess and I sat there alone until it was time for the next group of first graders or second graders to come in and eat. At this point, I'm bawling. She finally lets me go because I'm late to class and I walk in class still just like sobbing and sit down. Class has already started. I'm speechless. Who hurt her? Right. (laughs) What's wrong with you? It's peaches. Wow. 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 So thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry that that happened to little Erica. That's so not fair. How yeah. It's so so mean. mean, so mean. And I also appreciate that because it's not quote unquote dramatic to say that was trauma. That was a traumatic experience. I guess that's that's fair to say. Because this is one of those times it's like trauma is not what happened to you. Trauma is what happened inside of you. Oh, right. Yeah. So you were left alone and isolated and criticized and judged to a point where you were completely powerless couldn't do anything about it and sobbed alone by yourself because you were honoring yourself by saying I don't want to eat this I don't want to put this in my body and that's exactly what happens when we talk about attachment versus authenticity Uh right it's like your authentic response to slimy peaches is no thank you right you're not doing anything wrong you're not being a bad kid you're just saying I don't want to put that in my body And then in order to, quote unquote, survive, because when you're that young, it feels like survival, right? It's like you have to. And then and then you're and then you're stuck. And I would imagine the way that it felt being left alone, powerless and afraid. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Oh, all true. Right. I can still see the peaches floating in the chocolate milk. That's a traumatic experience. Yeah. Deep breath. Woo. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, again, I think it's just, this is why I love doing this podcast is because I know that there are a lot of people out there who can really relate. And this is the conduit through which people feel seen and heard and understood and validated because that shit is traumatic. Whether you think about it that way or label it that or not, Mm -hmm. you know, We've been through that. So I appreciate you sharing. And it's very common that people sit down and get asked these questions and are like, I don't even really remember. And then you sit for like a minute and you're like, oh my God, there are so many stories I could think of. Now is my that we- theme? <laughs> is my theme just being terrible at hiding food? <laughs> I thought peaches and chocolate milk was brilliant. I don't know how she figured that out, but yeah. Oh, man. Okay. The broccoli in the napkin was also not slick. Well, that's a little bit more classic, I will say. But at the how old are you? Six years old? Like, (laughs) for for your brain at the time, that's pretty brilliant. Like, Ocean's One. Just one person trying to hide food they don't want to eat. Wow. Okay. So, that's childhood. That's, there's the body image thing going on, sure. But there's also the food and eating thing going on. Yeah. Okay. So now you're 11. 
then what happens? Let's say 11 to like 15. This is where like puberty is starting to happen. What's going on with you and food and your body and stuff? As a, as a teen, I remember wanting to be in a smaller body, but not really doing much about it. I think I was, I didn't realize potato logs are like regional. They're essentially potato wedges fried in the, in the fried chicken grease (laughs) in a, in a soggy bag and eating bags of Doritos and was mystic, mystic and whatever other honey buns and all that type of stuff so but I was I was active so it didn't I I mean didn't really result in much as far as weight gain yeah I feel like as a teen and in early 20s it wasn't um it wasn't front of mind yeah I think I had other I had other bigger fish to fry sure with like fitting fitting in and being like one of the only few black people in my classes that were like I guess AP and advanced and like that sort of thing and just feeling an out like an outcast in that sense I feel like um and then not being black enough quote unquote for the black kids at my high school so I feel like that was the race was more of a yeah a factor as far as like feeling isolated and unsafe than like my body size. Right. Right. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Important follow-up question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate myself for saying this, but it keeps going up in my actual life. I have to ask. Do you. it. Do it. You mentioned Doritos. Mm-hmm. Blue or red Doritos? Red. Whoa. Okay. I'm team blue. All I mean, the, the blue way. ones are delightful. The blue right. one, Cool Ranch is great. But your team funny. Red. at the time there were only two kinds, I think. Yeah, I know, right? TBT yeah. to when there were only two flavors of Doritos, but crazy. Uh, yeah, okay, I had to know. I had to know. When I hear Doritos, it's a, it's a whole thing. Um, okay, so the other thing is that it sounds like there wasn't really just much awareness, or like it was like you're eating what you want, how you want. You're eating tasty foods, like you're not really paying much attention because quote unquote you don't have to because you don't have a weight issue, right? That's like pretty typical for like a teenager, I think, right? So, okay. So then let's move on through like high school, college. What, how does it go for you for the next, I don't know, five, 10 years? Anything stand out to you in terms of weight, food? Well, not having a lot of money in college makes it very easy to keep your weight down. Mm -hmm. I think um, classmates that had more available funds or that maybe weren't so like money conscious um would order out and do this and get pizza and all of that and with me it would be like the end of the night and eating a box of dry cheerios or what have you i think it is also like um i'm a pharmacist and pharmacy school was rough it was very difficult for me yeah so the I think the stress also kind of well wait a second actually that's when I was diagnosed with severe depression etc etc I think like the anxiety of trying to pass and trying to succeed with probably a natural chemical imbalance and all of that like building on top of each other also made it so body image was like last on the list yeah it was like trying to survive hell yeah that um was was first and foremost for me at that time that's a really important point surviving is always first and foremost whether we know it or not so i think that's always just an important thing i mean you're talking about a lot of different things depression anxiety the race experience for you like there was a lot going on that body image just really wasn't that important oh and also yeah maybe I went to a historically black college I went to Hampton where all types of blackness is celebrated all types of body sizes are celebrated Mm -hmm. so it was also a place to be 
safe in being a, a broader variety of, of body shapes and sizes, yeah. I would say. Yeah. I don't know if that would be the case at a predominantly white college because I've never been. Yeah. What was it like for you to arrive there and be oh, there? It was so freeing yeah. because to to be in a small rural town where um, to be picked at, you think you're all that. You think you're white. Why are you so light skinned? Is your mom white? Why do you speak that way? Why do you walk that way? And like that kind of constant pressure and criticism was poof disappeared at a HBCU because blackness was not walking a certain way or liking a specific type of music or having particular hobbies and interests or language or dialects. It just, it just was, and you can focus on connecting with other people, getting a foundation for your success, your studies. Like if you, like if you ran for office, like a student council type of thing, your blackness wasn't necessarily a, a detriment. Like you could just try and do and be. So I kind of call it my little mini Wakanda where it was just like a small carved out, I won't say utopia, but you, you, a utopia in the way that I did not have to deal with race and be conscious of it in the same way that I would in the world. I mean, going back home, it's jarring to be followed in a store. It's jarring to be underestimated and to be at like a, the equivalent of a Tupperware party and being watched like a like a hawk because they think you might steal something. Like all of those things were just not factors as I studied for my degree. So uh, yeah. yeah, it was quite freeing. And it, it built me up with like the confidence to like when I left that setting, knowing that I was able to achieve and do XYZ without and like gave me some some tools and some confidence to move through the world. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm just sitting with it. And I have a lot of feelings about it. I'm really glad that you were able to experience that. But it's also so heartbreaking. Yeah, it's it's palpable to me how what you're describing is it feels like you weren't surrounded by predators. Yeah, just because of your skin color. Yeah, which is something that on this podcast and in this community is not represented enough. And I think is just really, 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 really important. And I honor you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that here. It's such a huge part of this work and your story. So I just want to really like honor that. Because it's also such a, I mean, you know, we don't have to like fall down the rabbit hole of it, but it's such a, it's so important to understand how, you know, we call this when we're in group, we call this the macro to micro effect. The way that the macro, whether it's your body, you know, the culture around body size or the culture around race, language, ethnicity, gender, set, whatever it is, the macro has such a direct influence on the micro, which is the way that you experience your life and the way that it can feel really unsafe and also safe based on the environment in which you're existing. And it takes such a huge toll on any human psyche to be in a place of oppression, no matter what that, what that looks like or what that is. So um, for sure. 
it lit a fire under my ass to excel. Yeah. So I could leave. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay. So after college or through college, again, it's like you have bigger fish to fry. There's like bigger shit going on than like your body image stuff or food or whatever. You're trying to survive and cope and manage and stabilize and get through it and be all of those things. So then after college, or let's just say like, where does it start becoming a problem for you? Where do things start getting more and more on your radar in terms of food, eating, your relationship with your body, things like that? Um, I would say um, finding a life partner wasn't working, but I've always, always, always wanted to be a mother. Mm. So when I started on my journey to motherhood uh, through a donor, the first go round was not with a good ethical practice and they encouraged me strongly as in like, you need to get someone else to sign off on this to get off of my antidepressants, which was a recipe for failure. So I mean, pumped full of hormones unnecessarily, I might add. And I don't have, I mean, you don't have a chance in hell. Not when you need antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. You know, this was on top of a recent diagnosis of PTSD after being at an airport during a mass shooting. It was just like, and then the weight gain that you experience after being pumped full of hormones. So it was an unsuccessful try after that. Um, but, you know, you, you maintain the weight. You have to get all new clothes. And I started a relationship during my break my pause of pursuing motherhood. He was a gym bro. He was a narcissist. He, I think it's fair to say was abuse, abusive. He suggested that we do intermittent fasting and keto together, I Mm. guess to bond or it was not something nice to do together because it was something that he did and it was very important to him I was like sure whatever I've done this before it's really not a big deal I've done it before but it wasn't going well when I it works for a ton of people um with someone as with as someone with a mood disorder or if when skipping breakfast means your mood is off and you're trying to work and be productive it's crazy. Like with someone with a depression, a severe depression and anxiety history to like be moody when it can be solved with an orange felt crazy to me. Like, like <laughs> why wouldn't you just eat it? And uh-huh. so I did. Uh-huh. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> so he was bent out of shape and with health intimacy because he noticed that I was eating breakfast and I did not tell him. He said, well, I could have helped you. We could have done this together. Like he just laid me out. And I was like, well, you know, we can, we can cut this off. We can, we can be done with this. And then he backtracked into the narcissist thing of like, no, it's okay. Blah, blah, blah. And like, it's just because I care about you and I wanted to help and you didn't tell me, but this persisted for like, maybe six to eight more months of promises of being better and with and him withdrawing and trying to exert control and guilt about what I ate. Um, so after a couple of tries of breaking up, resulting in like getting a new door, getting a new security system, blocked, et cetera, et cetera, like telling him to get therapy. Like it was just... Um, I felt like for me, in order for me to heal, I needed to eat whatever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to, mm-hmm. because it was just like, just ever present and just bouncing around in my head in a way that was very uncomfortable. 
Yeah. After we broke up. Dude. Yeah, what a... I'm sorry you had to go through that. It's... You know, here's a problem. I'm pretty smart. I like Mm -hmm. to think of myself as being pretty smart. (laughs) I am still just, my mind is boggled by how I was able to put myself in that situation. I wasn't 21. Yeah. I was in my mid thirties, mid to late thirties. And it was just like, how could I put myself in this very unsafe, unhappy situation? I hear you. I still don't know how. Yeah. Um, well, I will tell you what it reminds me of, as you've heard me say before, is first of all, you are a very smart person and your logic and your emotions don't speak the same language. Oh, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that's like you can't go at it from that place of like logical, analytical, you know, data perspective, because that's an emotional thing. Our relationships And really the decisions that we make as humans, we're driven by emotion and how things feel. So it's, it's like, you have very valid reasons for having put yourself in that situation. No judgment, no shame about that, but woof. I am sorry that that had to happen that way. Thank you. But it was the last nail in the coffin. Right. I was going to say then. (laughs) Then I got my sperm out of the freezer. I got pregnant made identical twin boys that are amazing Woohoo! which happened to be november 2019 ah uh. yeah <laughs> right before the pandemic yes so suddenly and also my my sister was diagnosed with with a very aggressive cancer at the same time so suddenly alcohol out i do improv perform i love comedy i love i love that that's gone. Time with friends, gone. My social circle, gone. Like, whatever coping mechanisms I had, gone. Yeah. So, you know, they're born. It was a very traumatic birth. I lost half my blood volume, almost died, was in the ICU. They were premature. They were there for two months. About six months later, my sister passed. At least we were able to like stay with her and be with her. But the coping mechanism of the of the season was food. Mm-hmm. So I put on more weight than I did when I was pregnant with the twins at my most pregnant, maybe 20 pounds past that. And I just could not figure out. I know how to lose weight. I've done it before. I've done Goruck, this crazy like overnight military style bricks in your book bag sort of fitness challenge. At least maybe 15 or 20 half marathons. Was doing the gym thing for hours and hours at a time. Have done the diets. Have had the sweet potato snacks in the microwave. <laughs> like, like I knew what to do. And I could not for the life of me figure out why I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I knew the steps. I knew the pathway. And I knew exactly what to do and could not do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry about your sister. Thank you. Yeah, I know she that was, was really tough. Her name was Michelle. Mm-hmm. She was an incredible person. Thank you for being with us today, Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. That needed to be said. Her name needed to be said. (laughs) Thank you for saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We could be here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember this when I met you. This was probably soon before we connected for the first time. All of this was going on. Yeah. 
And so it's the pandemic. You have a traumatic birth to two boys. Your sister passes away. And you are just, again, I would imagine back in a survival mode in the middle of a global pandemic. Right. Yeah. Were you aware that food and eating was a coping mechanism? Not at all. Ah. You elucidated that. (laughs) I thought I was weak, Mm. a failure, disorganized. I thought I lacked discipline. I, I mean, it's, it's altogether a different body anyway, postpartum. Right. And a different way of life. I love being their mommy. I think it's really cool being a single mommy. We have a good time. We kick it hard, but it, it sure is different. Yeah. And trying to do the old things that you used to do to take care of yourself physically. It wasn't, it, yeah. it, it, it wasn't aligning. I did not realize until the program that food and doom scrolling and spacing out and just checking out after the boys went to bed was to cope with all of the many, many things that occurred. Yeah. Wow. So you thought something was wrong with you. Oh, a hundred percent. Hmm. How relatable. You thought you were the problem, which also is just, I always kind of have to take a minute to honor that and how common that is that, I mean, again, it's like when you tell your story, listening to it and breaking it down, like one thing at a time, it's like, of course you were literally in survival mode. And using food as a way to cope with it. And then what happens as a result of that is that you think you're the problem. You think you're broken. You think you're the thing that needs fixing when actually everything is working exactly as it should. Like, this is just all very appropriate. Logic Brain says right. you have you have frozen chicken breast in the freezer. You have brown rice in the pantry you have a peloton in the basement so what's wrong with you mm-hmm. Woof. i even I... eat broccoli now right. there's broccoli in the freezer too right. so then we get connected how did we get connected let's see um a podcast daisy chain Right, um, right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. My favorite murder to the cure for chronic pain. Yes. To out of the cave. And, and you know, I think sometimes you have to hear things at the right time. Mm-hmm. If the ground isn't fertile, the the seed doesn't grow anyway. Um, my friend Claire stopped by and she did group with you. We were having Indian food. And I was like, I shouldn't have any more. And she asked me very earnestly, why not? And I did not have an answer for her. (laughs) I didn't have a good answer. Yeah. So seeing her grow so much from your program, journal speak, and many, many other things that she has accomplished was inspiring to see. And it's kind of like, you know, um, I could hire another dietitian another personal trainer I could get a rower or like a a heavy bag I love martial arts like maybe this will be it maybe if I got the heavy bag I would lose weight and then it's just like wait 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 no this is this is more of the same and this isn't working I was hesitant to try your program initially because a lot of well actually but your pro your program didn't make the promise of you're going to be skinny mm-hmm. but many many others do and right. i've wasted a t- whole lot of money on a whole lot of different programs so um 
my mind was blown every single week. <laughs> so I was going to say, was like, what? <laughs> what? So then you, you take the leap of faith. You decide to join this program. And I think, I mean, this is always like, I struggle with even asking this question. Like, what was it like for you? Because it's like, that's a huge question. Right. There's 12 modules and you're saying your week, your mind was blown every week. So in a general sense, before we kind of break it down, like say more about that. What was it like for you? It. In the most authentic way, it was very freeing to know I'm not a piece of a lazy piece of shit. Mm -hmm. That was the I mean, that was the narrative. Right. That was the story that I was telling myself. So to be able to reframe it and, oh, I think I benefited from having something to do with having some sort of structure. Mm -hmm. I found myself instead of doom scrolling at night, working on myself because there was some level of accountability that in a, in a couple of days it would be discussed and I wanted to feel connected with the material and know that I was trying my best. I think money also helps when you pay for something, you want to get the most out of it. Oh yeah. So by replacing doom scrolling, and there's a rule for that, certainly, but by replacing the doom scrolling and emotional eating at night and the pity party, the nightly pity party, with productivity I think before the program was even over I started drawing every night mine wasn't really necessarily journeying like other people do um I love drawing and learning how to draw like on my iPad and like getting better at something and reconnecting with something that I love to do um I wrote a book about how to get a job in pharmacovigilance. <laughs> I wrote it in like four days. It was crazy. And it was just like, how many more things could I have accomplished and done if I didn't, it's not necessarily getting the ice cream after dinner and sitting on the couch. It's the feelings that I had about myself after I would do those things and the subsequent emotional decline and feeling like a failure. Like mm -hmm. if I removed those feelings and that mindset for a, a long period of time, it's like, well, how much could I have like achieved and accomplished? Yeah. It's you'll never know. But um man. Yeah. Really transformative. Yeah. Huge. Well, I'm so happy for you. And congratulations on writing a book. <laughs> That's a really big deal. <laughs> it's thank you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what I hear when you share that is instead of checking out, you were checking in. Yes. You yes. know, you weren't checking out, leaving yourself and and when the story and the message and the feelings are that you are so, you know, inadequate and such a failure and, 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 and that story in itself, it's like, that is the predator. And then you're paralyzed and you can't move because of the way that that feels. And so it's not like, you know, for anyone who can really relate to that, which I know a lot of people listening to this can relate to that. It's like the reason you can't quote unquote, get yourself motivated or like get yourself to just do it is because when there's so much shame and blame and the story of inadequacy and anxiety, that's fear. That's fear. So whether you're conscious of it or not, you're like running from a tiger on some level and you can't be creative and flowing in creation doing what really lights you up and fuels you because you're running from a predator. And so first we have to get the predator out of the room. And that's what a lot of, I mean, I think this program is really about is just getting the predator out of the room. And I would imagine too, for you, you know, you like science, you like data, right? It's like 
to me, that's why the brain science can be the most like enlightening and liberating and life-giving thing. That's like, here's how it works. You're not broken. Nothing's wrong with you. This is science. This is neurobiology. And then having that, you know, I know Allie talks about this, like having that weight lifted off of you. That's like, wait, so I'm not the problem. And it's like, ah, now you can breathe. Now you start feeling safe to just exist. And then once you're safe and in alignment with yourself, it's like, ooh, what do we want to do? Well, I like coloring. I like writing. I have all these ideas, right? But like, there's a reason we can't access that or manifest that when we're running from a tiger. That is our own narrative of shame and blame and fear. A hundred percent. And that's why, I mean, I wasn't sure if I believed you at first when you said, like, you won't relapse necessarily because the information is is there and you're out of the cave and you already know it and you can't unknow it. And you're right. Yeah. Like, you can't feel like, not you can't. It, it feels illogical to slip back in that mindset again because you know why you're doing it right you as in your the chemicals and synapses firing in your brain and that's the truth that's why it's like it's a raise in consciousness so you can go back sometimes you might quote unquote relapse in like your behaviors or your thought patterns but like you said it's like you can't unknow. You can't go back in the cave. You know why you're doing what you're doing. You know how it operates. You know how the mind-body system works. So there's no – that's the thing is that you you don't fall back into the shame and blame and guilt and failure and all that shit that was sucking your energy before because yeah. you're aware and educated and empowered with knowledge and information around why you're doing what you're doing. And you can't unknow that. And then you just start to embody that. So – that's how you get your life back. It's not always easy or comfortable or, you know, all those things, but you can't go back in the cave. That's the whole point. <laughs> so yes, great point. Yeah. So, okay. What are some of the things, if it's possible to do this, what are some of the things that stuck out to you or stick out to you? You know, we spent 14 weeks together. You went through 12 modules, lots of information, what are some of the big shifts that happened to you or even just the shifts of, you know, perspective? The division of labor when it comes to feeding the family. Ah, The boys are currently three and three-year-olds eat like three-year-olds. I would say initially I've put a lot of pressure on, they got to eat this pouch of squash and, and, and mangoes or like <laughs> whatever kind of veggie blend was like in a, in a little pouch or like it's my responsibility and responsibility alone. If they are unhealthy, like they have to eat this. So by dividing it between I buy the food, I prepare the food, I make eating a positive place instead of um the peaches and chocolate milk yep and the yelling yep and their job is to choose what they're going to eat and to eat it was was very freeing and i feel grateful that i learned it reasonably early now getting figuring out ways to get them engaged in the cooking process has been a lot of fun like getting them to help with cooking in the small ways they can like rinse this potato or not season the tacos, that would be terrible. But <laughs> measure out this seasoning and put it in a little bowl. And then I will take it and sprinkle it on the meat. They love tasting garlic powder and turmeric and random stuff that should be disgusting. But they think it's an adventure. They think it's cool. Like, I think that's a, an awesome foundation to start a relationship with food and then there isn't food that's off limits but the majority of it that I bring into the house is healthy so we can go balls to the wall when we go to Sesame Place or the zoo or whatever get the churros 
whatever. We can go to the bodega or the corner store. They call it the green store because it has green paint on it. We go to the green store, get whatever Doritos you want, red, blue, or purple. <laughs> All good. Yeah. So that feels that feels really, really good to me in my soul mm-hmm. to approach food in that way with them. Oh, man. Thank you for sharing that. It really gets me in my feels to hear about the kids. It always does. So the homies. I mean, this is like, this is why I do all of it because of the out of the cave babies. And that, like you said, you know, you learn this really early on. They get to do this from two on because now you know this. And like, I'm really passionate about working with parents for this reason. Oh, man. I'm so excited for you and for them. And I remember when that started happening during the group program, right? And we were talking about getting the kids involved. And you were like, they love it. And I love it. They do. I mean, will they eat it all the time? No. We spiraled a zucchini. They thought it was the coolest thing ever. (laughs) It was like a little sensory bowl of just like, like zucchini noodles. But one day they'll try it. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't taste like spaghetti, but it tastes perfectly fine. (laughs) A hundred percent. Amazing. Wow. I'm so happy for you and really proud of you that you really were into you. I mean, that's the thing is like, I always say this about the program, but it's like you get out of it what you put into it and you really made the effort and took the time and energy to integrate that into your experience around food and eating and with your kids. And so you get to kind of, you know, quote unquote, reap the the reward of seeing how that works for them and you. Um, were there other things that stick out to you? You know, like thinking about the people that are listening to this who like never saw the curriculum, other things that just like feel really important about how things shifted for you. The neuroscience specifically. I can't stress that enough. I heard a quote or some scientist or some very big thinker talked about like how much free will do we actually have and how much of it is just like reflexes. Mm. Like how much control do we truly have and how much is just your body's surviving instinctually. Right. So also knowing that there's like neuropath waves that really groove in and the more you do something and the longer you do something, the harder it is to break. And the grace that comes with knowing that this is objectively difficult and this is why. Yeah. Um, was, was quite freeing. Yeah. Amazing. My God, there's so many things. What else? The part about what ideas and what reasons do you have for losing weight are actually yours Ah. and how much of it is external factors where did like rooting out like where did my ideas about weight come from is it physically uncomfortable to be in this body or is it just you feel like you shouldn't be in it like I had a brief injury. Oh, I know. It was, I'll I'll say it. Um, I was doing Peloton and they have like dance routines too. And there was a Beyonce advanced one and I hurt my knee and then exacerbated it when a baby jumped on the side of my knee. It was like a football injury. It was like LCL like sprain or something. Um, So not having the ability to move as well, I think also messes with your mind. Turning 40 also messes with your mind. Being in a larger body, like, and how much of that was just, like, emotional versus, like, be patient with yourself. You have an injury. You can exercise again. And fit, and realistically, knee aside, you can, you can shake it up and move and carry both of these 30-pound babies up and down the stairs if you needed to. You're not as weak 
as you think you are. Objectively, yeah. you can do the things that you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. That's a big one for a lot of people is just having the time and space to say, why do I want what I want? Why do I think the way I think? And that's the path back from attachment to authenticity, ultimately, is if I if I parse out what is mine and what isn't, I'm actually, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Like, I'm safe to be exactly as I am who I am in this body that exists right now, which is another big exile. Okay. I mean, I, I know. That's why people, especially who like have recently been through group or or even are far out from going through group and then think about like, you know, the takeaways. It's like, well, I don't know. My mind was blown every single day and there were different things that happened every day. Like it's hard to identify. But I think like my maybe final question for you is if you take a moment to think back to where you were and how you started to where you are now, what feels different about the way that you move through life I'm much more in tune with listening to my body not just I think a lot of people talk about it as in full or hungry right versus I feel lethargic after I eat this yep I feel sad or guilty or happy or proud or like yeah. emotions after I eat a certain thing and like why that is. Yep. It's much easier to eat more nutrient dense food when there's not so much emotion tied up in it. And it's more like objectively, I feel better when I eat this. And when it's something that's done out of love for my my body and myself versus the self-flagellation of you fat bitch you better eat those baby carrots yep that's it <laughs> love not fear baby yeah i was pretty mean to myself yeah a lot of us are i mean we're taught we have to be that's the quote-unquote survival mechanism you know but that's, I mean, that's really everything. If I could like define, I know it's it's hard to articulate, but it's like if I were to really define what this is all about, it's that. It's first you have to get the predator out of the room. And when you understand that you're not broken and that you're doing everything right, actually, then you can start to say, well, how do I want to feed myself from a place of I am safe right now? What are the choices that I want to make? It's like, well, you kind of naturally listen to your body because you have the safety to pay attention. Again, you can't you can't listen to your body when you're running from a predator. Well, shit. Right? You're right. <laughs> That's the whole idea. So the first step is get the predator out of the room, which is, you know, the culture, the narrative, the things that you've been conditioned and socialized to believe, the way that you're beating yourself up, all those things. But when that happens... You can listen to your body, which like, I love that you said this. It's more than hungry and full, right? It's like, how do I feel? What emotionally is going on? Just getting you more in touch with yourself. And by the way, I think that also speaks to feeling and being connected to yourself on a soul level, which is why you also could birth something creative, right? It's like listening to your body. I mean, the body is the home of the soul. So ultimately you're listening to your body. No wonder you wrote a book. Oh my That's God, what my happens. soul lives here. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens. Yeah. You know, I see you. I mean, even with like, um, my antidepressants were starting to wear, which they do after like five years or so. Even like being able to be more in tune with those sort of things. Yep. Like it it's I it transcends just the food part, which I didn't expect. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the amazing thing to me is like, I mean, again, we've we talk about this all the time. It's not about the food. It's not about the food, but this is about following the thread 
of your relationship with food really brings you back inside your body. And part of that is you're feeling physiologically what's going on. You're feeling emotionally what's going on. You're feeling physically what's going on. You're more aware mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially. It's it's the pie chart, you know, all different kinds of health. And you're just coming back inside. Yeah, it is wild. So oh, yeah, I didn't say it orally. <laughs> I can is, I can see this you. is a audio an, an audio medium. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> so okay. I know like, you know, we could sit here forever and talk about it because I, I know that things have have really shifted for you. This I mean, I again I'm not gonna put words in your mouth, but I think it's a pretty life-changing experience. So are there any just like final thoughts? things that come to you that you want to share with the people who are listening? Ooh. Um, no pressure. Yeah. I want to speak up. I want to speak authentically in the way of it, not sounding like an infomercial to join the group. <laughs> I can say that doing the work and taking the time is one of the biggest gifts I've given to myself and to my kids. I think also maybe like I might've pushed myself to do it more. Cause it's just like, you, you can't be this way and be a, the best mother you can be if you're not happy and not the best person you can be. Would I have done it for myself? I don't know. Maybe I would have just drank instead like I'm not even being flippant about it. Like, um, it's a shame that more people can't absorb this message. I mean, more people can. It would be lovely if as many people as possible could hear this message and receive it. Um, is it's really an act of love. It's really cool that you share it too. You could have taken your information and trotted off and had a really healthy, happy life. It's really lovely that you've created this forum and this place to share it. And I'll be forever grateful, sincerely. Thank you. I really, really hear you and appreciate that and receive that. And I know how true it is. And you don't sound like an infomercial. You just sound really embodied and grateful. And it means the whole world to me because this but is- But wait, like, there's yeah. more. Please. You can get um, the uh, uh, out of the cave t-shirt. <laughs> you get three people to sign up for group. <laughs> no. Um, I love that idea. I stand by that. That's a great People do promo. a lot of things for a t-shirt. Hey, we have them on the website and anyone who's listening to you get three people sign up for group. I will send you a t-shirt. I have no problem doing that. <laughs> I will do that. Thank you. Thank you for the idea. Um, dude, Erica, I am so, I'm really happy for you. I'm so proud of you. I'm really blown away by the way you showed up for this and the way that you're Thank integrating you. it for yourself and for your kids and for your kids' kids, you know, it's a really big deal. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing all of that with the people. Thank um, you. Yeah. I love you. And I'm really glad that we got to do all of this together. Love you too. You're amazing. Thank you. You're amazing. <sighs> Until next time, my friend. Thank you.